0: Who is wise? The one who learns from others. Join me in a journey where I speak to Jewish women from all different backgrounds, each sharing their own stories, struggles, and successes. Be a part of a community where you connect to something greater than yourself. I'm your host, Karen Koren, and welcome to Soul Sessions with KK. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Soul Sessions with KK. I'm your host, Karen Corin, and my next guest is someone I've always wanted to interview. A Yale graduate, Michelle Hackman is based in Washington as a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. What you will discover in this interview is that Michelle is no ordinary Jewish woman. Her journey is unique and inspiring. Get ready for an interview that will open your mind and your heart. But before we begin, I would like to take a moment to thank this episode's sponsor, Cookies for the Soul. It's fitting that Soul Sessions and Cookies for the Soul have joined forces to make this podcast hit the spot. Talia of Cookies for the Soul started her cookie business when she graduated college. As a devoted foodie and pastry lover, she infused her love for sweets and her passion for baking to create Cookies for the Soul. These cookies are not your average cookies. They are the softest, chewiest, gooeyest, and most delicious cookies you ever had in your life. These cookies hit the spot when you're happy or even when you're feeling sad. It's the epitome of soul food because sometimes all you need at the end of the day is a delicious cookie. Her cookies are available in chocolate chip, Oreo chip, sprinkle sugar, and much more. And you can choose to buy them dairy or parv. Each cookie is handmade from scratch and made with love. Try going on our page and not biting through your screen. They look as good as they taste. Check them out on Instagram and Facebook as Cookies for the Soul and online at cookiesforthesoul.nyc. Now, without further ado, it is my honor to welcome the remarkable and talented Michelle Hackman.
1: Hi, Michelle. Thank you for being on Soul Sessions. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do?
2: Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, I'm Michelle. I am a reporter uh, living in Washington, D.C., working at the Wall Street Journal, and I write primarily about domestic policy issues, so a lot on healthcare, care, education, um, you know, other social policy issues, abortion, things like that.
1: Oh wow. Wow. So what brought you to Washington?
2: I, that's a good question. I um always wanted to I was always really interested in politics and I always wanted to be a reporter. So it just it made sense that if I wanted to write about the stuff that I was interested in, that I'd have to live in Washington eventually. So that's how right. I got here.
1: Wow. Wow. And can you tell us why you wanted to be a reporter in the first place? Like what What inspired you to be a reporter and, let's say, not anything else? It's
2: such a good question. Um, I don't have a perfect origin story for how I discovered journalism. I definitely, as a little kid, was really into watching the news with my dad. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. know, like, he'd have on the evening news, and I'd be really interested. And it seemed like that was definitely something I knew was, like, weird about me. You know, other kids definitely did not enjoy right. watching the news and by the time I was in middle school I um you know like I I remember I would get up and I would read the New York Times before school Wow, just on the internet <laughs> in <middle school? laughs> yeah I was a so awesome. memory in like seventh grade of sitting and reading um articles in the Times I think I would I would read more accessible stuff then like I I really liked the Science Times, which is on Tuesdays, which is, like, really just interesting, accessible science news. Um, and yeah. it just kind of, I don't know, the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. I liked writing, Um, but I wasn't, like, going to become a novelist, you know? Right, <laughs> um, And right. I really liked, I really enjoyed politics and current events and um hearing people's opinions. And, you know, I'm kind of also, I think, like, as a personality trait, I'm kind of, you know, uh, I think nosy is like a, a <laughs> derogatory way of describing it. But I really like asking people that they're live. That, um, we and have something in
1: common, Michelle.
2: Totally. you're doing this show. We definitely have something in common. Our curiosity. Yeah, and and journalism. I mean, when you show up and you say I'm a reporter, that gives you so much social license to ask questions that are uncomfortable, rude, impertinent. So I think it just it made more and more sense. You know, I'm blind. I don't know if that was said in the intro. (laughs) Of course. Um, And in high school, I joined our our high school newspaper. And wrote for it for about a year, and there was a sort of track that you had to follow if you wanted to stay on the editorial side of the newspaper. You had to, like, apply freshman year to become this kind of editor, and then once you were that kind of editor, then you'd be elevated to, like, a section editor, and then you could be able to be editor-in-chief. And so I, you know, I did the first year. I wrote the stories, and I was eligible to become an editor um, this was, this was in high school? This was in this high was school? This freshman year of high school at our high school newspaper. So, you know, small fakes.
1: <laughs> well, Michelle, um, how, how did you do that with, you know, your setback? You know, with being a blind woman,
0: how, mm-hmm. how did
1: you persevere through that particular struggle that you had?
2: I wouldn't call the newspaper a struggle. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it actually, you know, there were things that, um, would have been tougher for me to join as a high school student, like a sports team. Um,
1: Why is that but,
2: well, because I can't really like chase people around and look at it to look for a ball, things like that, you know, something like soccer, running mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. would have been a little, I think running maybe would have been possible, but I didn't. I didn't think about it at the time. Um, So, But, uh, I mean, by contrast, did you have to do a
1: special program in order to read? Like, can you get to how you came about reading if you weren't able to see, like, what program you were under
2: to learn how to read? Mm -hmm. So I I had some vision as a kid and uh, learned to read, you know, like you did. Um, uh, but at the same time they taught me how to read Braille, which is like the system of raised dots. And so mm-hmm. I learned Braille. And then when I lost all my sight, I was about eight. Um I they taught me how to use this software on the computer that kind of that talks to you as you go. So it sort of reads you what you're typing, what it says on the page. And so I um, I learned how to type. So this was all something around third grade. Um and I with the started, computer program. Yeah, right, with the computer program. And so really quickly I reverted to using the computer for more and more things. And by the time I reached high school I used the computer for pretty much everything. Um I you used, got used to for, it for like math class. Yeah. Oh totally. It was like second uh, nature for you. Oh yeah. And, you know, I like probably took better notes than other people because I was able to type my notes. Oh, think about that. I didn't think about that. Right. (laughs) Wow. Uh, So the newspaper just felt like, you know, it was like close enough to academics. I would go interview people and then I would like take notes and turn them into stories. So, um, you know, I doubt they were Mm -hmm. good stories, but (laughs) wow. Uh, Yeah, in terms of, I mean, it it, it really in terms of all the things that I would say were maybe difficult, or I had to actually think of workarounds for this was not one of them. Oh, so yeah, working for the newspaper
1: and typing up people's stories and asking questions—this was something that was it came more natural for you, and you felt like
2: right, right, wow. And I will, Michelle.
1: I I wanted to ask you something. I'm sorry to interrupt you. But when you lost your vision, all of your vision at eight years Mm -hmm. old,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: how, I mean, first of all, how, how did you feel the first, like the first month, the first couple of months
2: when it happened? You know, it's such a great question. Um, I don't know if you remember really vividly being eight years old. I don't actually. (laughs) You don't. I remember Mm -hmm. not, I remember not understanding what was going on. And I think by the time I really started to understand what was going on and, and, you know, sort of what had happened was permanent or semi-permanent, um, mm-hmm. like life had kind of already gone back to some kind of a normal, <laughs> you know, um, interesting. My, my parents, That's very interesting. Yeah. My parents took me out of certain things when it happened, you know, like I, I had been doing gymnastics and stuff and, um, my parents took me out of those things and after a certain time i was like wait can i go back to gymnastics like this sucks <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so you did experience
1: painful feelings at that I, time
2: i think i definitely did
1: um and how did you deal re- with it's those really
2: difficult for me to remember i don't know it's a really i wish i could give you a better answer than that but i I don't have any vivid memories from that time at all. I do from. I do. That's from, a great answer. You know, that you later. don't. You know, maybe.
1: Maybe it kind of you blocked it out of your memory. Or yeah, just,
2: I wonder if it's a coping mechanism that I just don't. That I did block it out of my memory. It's very possible. Or it could be that you know you're in such
1: a good place in your life that it doesn't even seem like it's a struggle
2: for you anymore. I mean. I don't know. Could that be? You know, be? I, it's weird. I don't think about it as this, like, as this big pivotal, pivotal traumatic moment in my life the way that I think maybe other people would think of it. Mm-hmm. Um. I have been through some, you know, other things that have been really hard that I feel like, reflecting back, I think of those as much more traumatic than... Can
1: you tell us about that? Can you tell us about what was more traumatic in your eyes than losing your vision? You
2: know, uh, losing a member of my family—I lost one of my cousins really young. That I'm so was sorry really. To hear that. It, that's it's okay. <laughs> um, Who was that? Who was your cousin? That was my my cousin Pauline. Yeah, um, we
1: all were very upset when that happened. Yeah.
2: So I mean I think about that as something that was like much more truly traumatic. (laughs) Sure. Of Um, course. Yeah. Of course. When you put Uh, things into perspective. That is definitely much
1: more traumatic.
2: I don't mean to even sound like a murder when I say that. I just I wanna I wanna give you a sense that something that you I think you probably can envision what it feels like to go through something like that and I'm telling you that that was much worse than what I remember it feeling like to lose my vision. You have to also remember my vision was so bad, <laughs> you know, right. before I lost it entirely that like it, was it that much of a change? I mean, uh, probably, probably see. yes, still it was, but it wasn't so dramatic.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I see that. So,
2: was this something you were born with,
1: and is it something that can perhaps be improved with technology?
2: Are you even, like, it, looking into that anymore, or is this something that you are like, was. Expected? Yeah, it was something I was born with. Um, it's a, a sort of genetic, um, mm-hmm. genetic thing, and it would be pretty difficult to reverse. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, I have, at this point I have, um, I have a prosthetic eye, both prosthetic eyes actually, so that means they're, they're not real. I had to have mine removed. So, mm-hmm. it would take some pretty advanced technology to, um, give me the ability to see again. I'd probably, I've, I'm making this up, but I imagine it would take like an eye transplant of some kind.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and, Because you do hear stories of people who
2: have regained
1: their vision with technology, but that wouldn't apply to you.
2: It wouldn't apply to me yet. I imagine maybe at some point in my lifetime, it's possible that it would. Um, And, you know, I'm not like, I'm not going to pretend. If it was an option and I was convinced that it was safe, I, I think I would definitely do it. But of mm-hmm. all the things that I think about wanting, <laughs> like that I wow. fantasize about, it almost never occurs to me.
1: That's incredible. So I don't know if you know this about me. I have a daughter who doesn't have any hair, um, mm. like no hair on her body. And uh-huh. she lost it at a very young age. Like she lost it at all of it at three years old and she didn't really uh-huh. realize it was happening to her.
2: And yeah. as you were
1: saying for yourself, you think it was more traumatizing, let's say, for other people, right? For her, she like it doesn't really face her, right? Now. I think
2: that that's definitely true. It was more traumatic for my parents and my brothers to go through probably than it was for me, because you well, don't I totally realize, yeah. Mhm, mhm.
1: You know, in my first episode, I was actually discussing, you know, about my daughter's autoimmune disease um, with Uh another mother, Uh and we were discussing how in our community and in all Jewish communities that there's a shame, you know, surrounding people with disabilities or diseases, and yeah, yeah, I must tell you that one of the reasons I was able to handle and accept and be proud of my daughter's autoimmune condition
2: Uh is because of people
1: like you and because of people like your mom no really (laughs) i i'm not one to just say things that you you and even your mom you guys Mm -hmm. are one of my heroes and um i was interested to know can you tell our listeners just a little bit about your mother and how much she has meant to you in this process
2: yeah for sure so my mom has a um a rare disorder that occurs a lot in the community that we're from, the, the Shadi mm-hmm. Jewish community called HIVM, which is a form of muscular dystrophy that occurs only in the limbs. So, you mm-hmm. know, thank goodness it's not life threatening, but, um, it's, it's been a weird process for me mm-hmm. watching my mom going through this sort of parallel. Um, right. she was diagnosed when I was about 2 or 3 years old um, and sort of you know were you aware of it her go through, from the beginning uh yes i have to have been because by the time uh, my my memory of my mother has always been with her she started out with a limp and then she started using a cane um yes. so i i distinctly remember her walking with a cane and of course i couldn't see well so you know, she'd have the cane in one hand and holding my hand in her other hand. Um So
1: you remember that, and,
2: right? Yeah. And then, you know, when I was eight or nine, uh, we installed this, like, sort of chair lift thing that got her up the stairs because the stairs were too difficult for her. So, you know, it was this whole process. And then when I was about 15 or 16, I think this was one of the more... Pivotable, pivotal things that I remember happening, Um, she decided, you know, it was really getting tough for her to walk around, and it was limiting our lives, you know, like, mm-hmm. I really wanted to go to the mall with my mom, but she couldn't walk that far, or, you know, it we couldn't do a lot of the sorts of uh recreational activities like you know, hikes were out of the question, even walking around in Manhattan was out of the question. And my mom made this decision that she wanted to start using a scooter. Um and I found that really deeply upsetting at the time because I was like yeah. if my mom starts to use a scooter, that means she's never gonna walk again And it was really scary to me. And I was like that, you know, in some ways I was like, is my mom giving up? Like, this is terrible. And she started using the scooter and it changed her life and it changed my life because, you know, yeah, she She it was much harder for her to stand now. She definitely can't walk, but... It transformed her life. I mean, she got a car that she could bring her scooter into so she could drive herself. She, you know, she and I started taking the train into Manhattan together and we could go as far as we wanted.
1: Um, know. So, so I both of see- you, you know, I see that you both had certain limitations and yeah. I can see that you both used your limitations not to bring you down but to still continue and living life and you still persevered despite
2: you know your circumstances right and there's a lot of ways I think it's been a lot harder for my mom than it has for me like using the word persevere to me sometimes sounds like overkill <laughs> Right. Yeah, I claim for what that. I've been through, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, in every other way, sure, I'm I'm blind, but in every other way, I've had like the most um fortunate, privileged upbringing. You know, I went to a really great school. My family, you know, never struggled with money. Um, I, you know, went to in a really amazing college. So, in terms of In terms of life circumstances, it feels like other than my blindest, I've had every advantage it's possible to have. (laughs) Wow, Um, you're
1: so refreshing to talk to. (laughs) You know, I think, (laughs) I feel like majority of people, they focus on the quote unquote bad things that happen to them or they focus on what they don't have. And here you are, you know, speaking that like, what, like. Who cares? Like, okay, so I'm fine, <laughs> but I have
2: so much good around me, and that's yeah. so
1: incredibly refreshing.
2: Well, and you know, I think it, it takes some broadening of your horizons to be able to have that perspective. I don't think, I don't know if I necessarily would have spoken the same way if um, you talked to me while I was still living in Great Neck. But you
0: okay. know, I, for you-
2: for example, yeah, for example, you know, we always had. Uh, a full-time housekeeper at our home, uh, you know, who was a, a woman from El Salvador, and I, I went to college, and my... I'm sorry,
1: which college did you go to? I didn't ask I, you that. I
2: went to Yale. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Okay. And um, my, you know, the girl who lived across the hall from me freshman year, who became... My best friend, I would still describe her as my best friend in the world, <laughs> mm-hmm. is, a you know, a daughter of um, a Salvadoran immigrant, and her mother was, is also a housekeeper in Los Angeles working for a wealthy Persian woman. <laughs> so, you know, I was like, oh, my goodness, you know, Maria had been working in our house since I was 10 or 11, and I was like, this is like Maria's daughter. You know, mm-hmm. and Carla had grown up. Carla is is my really good friend. Um, she'd grown up with no money. You know, like she mm-hmm. lived in this really tiny apartment with her her parents and siblings, and um, she went to this public high school. Um, you know, that wasn't all that great, and just sort of had to find ways to enrich her academic life for herself and um, you know, was, was able to get into Yale where she uh, had a full ride. So she didn't have to pay anything, but there were even, there were really simple things, you know, that none of, no one in her family had been to college, her parents, her older siblings.
0: Wow. So there were a lot
2: of things about college she didn't know. Um mm-hmm. And I could just, you know, I could go home and visit my family whenever I wanted, but for her, she didn't have the money to pay for plane tickets. So, you know, like Thanksgiving, she would almost always stay on the East Coast. Um, often over the spring break, she would stay. And right, I had right. a few friends. My other best friend, I would say, was pr- from a pretty similar, um, money background. You know, mm-hmm. he was, he's, um, the child of um, Mexican and Colombian immigrants. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just compared to that, I mean, Getting to know what their lives were like, and a lot of my friends are first generation college students i mean it's it's completely different worlds, <laughs> completely of
1: course, yeah, and like I see from your experiences you know how important and how vital it is to be surrounded with people who are not necessarily the same as you who yeah. don't necessarily think the same as you or totally you know come from the same background or that you don't have to necessarily agree with everything that they do or say but there's absolutely this, you know and I feel like that's also it trickles down to how you're a reporter and I think that's from what I'm getting I feel like that's why you're interested in reporting because <laughs> you're interested in people's stories it's, it's wonderful it's, it's i think so that's
2: true yeah
1: oh like wow because you know growing up in a very secluded jewish community it's very easy to be closed-minded and to not think outside of your bubble like you know so many people in our community or in any closed Mm -hmm. Jewish community you feel like oh this is this is life this is what life is all about there's nothing else exists besides my little community here
2: (laughs) And my mom told me that when I was born um, you know I was born with a significant vision impairment and she said I knew that from the day you were born that there were almost no prospects for you in this community that she knew it was a problem, you know, with someone with a disability to marry within the community. Mm-hmm. And so she said, I made a much more concerted effort with you to make sure that you had friends who were not machete,
1: um, wow.
2: which is really interesting to me. Cause I wonder like, would she not have done it otherwise? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I had friends I mean... growing up who were, you know, Indian Chinese. So I, my world never felt like it was just this one community and it surprised me that even though you know a lot of my machete friends went to the same school as I did that their world became more and more machete and I think it it Mm -hmm. really really diverged when I went to college because that you know I think there are a lot of social mores and expectations that go with people who are really serious about their academics. And I sort of took that on as my community and my set of values and that Mm -hmm. it made it really hard to then even imagine a world where I would try to then reintegrate or like follow. um,
1: That's wonderful.
2: And I feel like,
1: wow, I feel like, you know, your mother has helped you so much to become who you are obviously you have a lot to do with yourself too but (laughs) if your mother was like hiding you or like not giving you enough options and she was always upset you would have been in a completely different route completely different and you're thriving partly because of your mother and it just shows, like, a mother's strength and, and my love, dad. the power of it, and <laughs> the father. Yes, of course.
2: So, Actually, my dad my, is, like, the one who always, has always, he's made it practically possible. He always is the one who moves me and
1: <laughs> Wow, things like that's
2: that. incredible. So, I'm not,
1: I have to tell you, your your family is one I adore so much and one who so many people adore because yes. of your value system and the way you think and you guys are so open-minded and open and it's so inspiring. It's so inspiring to see that that, you know, it's okay if I'm battling with something or if I'm struggling in a particular area. Right. You know, it's it's fine. It's okay. I have so <laughs> many blessings in my life. Absolutely. You, know, you guys are definitely role models in our community. I wanted to tell you. So, being that you are very open and you had a lot of friends, you went to Herricks
2: High School, yes? I went to Great Neck North High School.
1: Oh, you did! I didn't know that. I
2: did. I went to Herricks for my elementary school. Oh, for your
1: elementary school. So, being that you made a lot of friends, you know, who weren't particularly of the Jewish faith. Mm -hmm. How did that influence your
2: Judaism or your beliefs as a Jew? Interesting. Yeah. So I think I got to think about that a lot more when I went to college because there was less, you know, I think the way that I think about it is that um, growing up, Judaism was taught to me as this thing that was not – not really so much about belief or about your values, but about certain rituals that you followed. Um, Mm -hmm. And it, it felt to me like, you know, even though I think that there's this really strong value system behind Judaism, that a lot of what, how it trickled down to me, especially as a woman who wasn't really allowed to engage with the faith, you know, I sat in the back of the synagogue where I couldn't hear anything and couldn't read the Torah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, or at least that's know, how didn't... you felt
1: in the way. Like,
2: yeah. That's, that's, that was my experience of it. That Judaism to me was taught at this, as this set of rules and rituals about um, mm-hmm. kashrut, about keeping Shabbat and, and it sort of felt like those things were, how people defined almost whether you're a good person, you know, if you are, if you adhere to being kosher, if you adhere to keeping your Shabbat, that that is a virtue. Um And going to college where I've met all these people who were Christian, but honestly, mostly a religious. Um, right. And seeing that they were just as good people made me think more about, um, how to engage in Judaism in a way that was more about values rather than rules sure. and rituals. exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that the way, and and the other thing that I think I realized when, when you have some separation from the entire community, I think it's easier to pick out what is, you know, what is worthwhile to you and what is not. And I think the way that I talk about Judaism now is that it feels like to me, it feels like, the things that are significant are the holidays where I get to see my family and eat great food and <laughs> mm-hmm. build community. Tradition and, that's, and yeah, together. exactly. And that's, mm-hmm. what I, that's what I take from Judaism now. And I stick with the things that are meaningful to me and I don't with the things that are not. <laughs> right, um, right. And, yeah, and I definitely, definitely think of myself as Jewish still. Which um, yeah, just might of course. be, you know, a different definition of Jewish than other people have.
1: So, from what I'm hearing is that, for you, Judaism kind of looked like a bunch of no's and, like, laws and rituals. Right. And you didn't find meaning in that, but,
2: You know, unfortunately, not just no's, but just, I, I felt like, you know, it's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, if you, you're a good person if you don't drive on Shabbat. <laughs> or at least that's um, how you that's receive how that it, information exactly mm-hmm. exactly, and so it it took some time for me to figure out that you know that was not the value system that I wanted to adhere right. to or evaluate other people by <laughs> <laughs> of course so i mean
1: yeah. i live I live in the community that you know you come from, yeah. and so how did I embrace my Judaism is that i I had to leave Great Neck and Mm -hmm. I had to discover my relationship with God on my own and Mm -hmm. not just from, you know, the set of beliefs that were just ingrained in me all this time. I had to go out there and search and question and think about all these different things and what they mean to me. And I feel like if I didn't go through that process of like Mm -hmm. separating myself and learning going out of the box, I wouldn't have mm-hmm. been the person I am today and
2: and what did you gain that? from that? I
1: gained a different perspective, I gained meaning. Mm-hmm. I learned that, mm-hmm. you know, Judaism is not just a set of rituals and it's not just about like how many mitzvah points but Mm -hmm.
0: it's more
1: than that in that Judaism (laughs) is actually a relationship it's a relationship Mm -hmm. with God it's a relationship with our peers and our family Mm -hmm. members and Mm -hmm. our friends and it's a relationship with ourselves and it's all encompassing so I didn't grow up in a uh, what's called orthodox background I grew up in a traditional family where we had Shabbats Mm -hmm. And right. it kosher in the home, but not out of the home. But slowly, slowly, I started to appreciate everything, you know,
2: mm-hmm. the family
1: I grew up in and the new perspective that I've received. So, yeah. I definitely can understand what you're saying about, you know, leaving behind, you know, just like Abraham, you know, our forefather, where he left his father's house, his land, his birthplace. And he went on a search on his own. And that's how he found God. So yeah. it's very interesting how you discovered your relationship with
2: Judaism. <laughs> it definitely took time. <laughs> yeah. It's- yeah. So and let me ask you
1: something. I know you mentioned to me that you went on a fellowship last year in Berlin.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You
1: went for 10 weeks in Berlin, and it was your first time – Correct me if I'm wrong, that you went abroad, and you also mm. reported abroad. Mm-hmm. Have, it was my first time living abroad. I would say. Oh wow!
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. So, I'm assuming that you've encountered anti-Semitism over there. No, not personally, not at all. Or but did you hear about
2: it? I, I heard. You know, there were some events while I was there that. Uh, really scared my parents in particular but we're really it was interesting to be there at the time um, where some of this anti-semitism was developing and and talk to people about it while i was there i will say i experienced absolutely no anti-semitism in berlin
1: (laughs) oh wow okay i didn't know that yeah um but your experience over there how did it shape who you are
2: going to a different country you know, it – um I always – I think this is just part of my personality. I really love mm-hmm. seeing new places and exploring new places. I've never thought about what it would feel like to actually live in a place that was not America. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, um, But, you know, here was this opportunity. And, and before I left, one of my – my boss, you know, he sat me down and he said – you really should treat this as an experiment to see if you like living abroad and working abroad and maybe becoming a foreign correspondent. And, you know, even though I was already going on this this trip, I hadn't thought of it really in those terms, and I tried to shift my thinking to think about it in those terms. You know, what what would it feel like to live in this – what would it feel like to live in a country where you're not a native speaker, where um, – Mm -hmm. You don't know all that many people. It's almost like what our parents came went through when they came here, and yeah, definitely. um, I found for me, I loved it. (laughs) It was just enough of a challenge every day that it kept me really interested. And, And this is this has sparked like many an argument between my mom and me because she is like. You've gone you've gone far enough already. Uh-huh. uh-huh. You don't need to move abroad now. <laughs> she wants to see you,
1: obviously. Right. right. And no. do you feel like you would ever want to be a foreign correspondent? Definitely.
2: Yeah, it's something I think about a lot now. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it'll happen immediately, but at some point. I don't care. I mean, I I have this philosophy that we have one life to live and so I wanna to try to pack as many things as I can into this one life that
0: oh I my have.
1: Gosh. Wow, Michelle. <laughs>
2: you live like every day like as if it's your last day.
1: I feel
0: like that's your model.
2: You
1: yeah, live every I don't, day. I don't
2: think about it quite like that, but I try to you know, I don't I don't try to let days go to waste.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can, I can see, see that how I would put it. You know, there's a saying that it goes you know those like cliche quotes that you hear. Like, mm-hmm. it's uh, <laughs> you only you only live once, but that's not true. You live every day. You die once, and I don't know. I just uh, I haven't heard that, but I me. definitely agree with it. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like yeah. that's your motto in life. So, Michelle, I want to ask you: um, Who are your role models, and why?
2: I never have a good answer for this one. <laughs> um, there was this woman I discovered in a book that I read while I was in Berlin last year. And if I if I ever read a biography, I would consider writing it about her. She um, was a journalist living in Berlin. Her name was Sigrid Schultz. And she's, she was Jewish. Mm. Um, and she... Mm. Um, I think, you know, she started to realize that Germany was becoming a more and more dangerous place. Right. But at the same time, she was a very good journalist and she was able to form relationships with Nazis, with people in the Nazi government. Oh, my God. Very high up. Like she would go to, she would get invited to parties by Goering and Goebbels and Oh my God! She would go to them and use the information to report what was going on, um, at great risk of her own life. You know, yeah. Jewish. Oh my God! Um, well. And she didn't leave until 1939, and I'm certain that if she'd stayed any longer, she would have gotten killed. Um, but I what's think her about her a lot again? because her name is Sigrid Schultz. And what's the name of her book? Uh, she was a character in a book I read. Oh, she's a character. She's like a char- in, pa- she was mentioned almost in passing, but I was like, "What a fascinating woman!" And
1: mm-hmm.
2: you, a woman with a mission. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who's not afraid, and I just, I think that's so amazing. So I, I think about her. I don't know if that's like absolutely the best example of a role model, but my mind, or even in like my, my your mind. everyday
1: life, people who you actually see
2: and talk mm-hmm. to. Oh, anyone. I don't I don't know if I fixate on one person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there are well, a lot as people a reporter, you
1: who, who are interested yeah, in
2: a lot of people. Yeah, right, exactly. So, but there are a lot of people that I take inspiration from.
1: For sure. Michelle,
2: yeah.
1: what are some of your hopes and dreams for the world?
2: For the whole world?
1: Yeah, for the world, for your life. Like, what do you want to... You wanna leave this world with uh you know I'm losing my words.
0: <laughs>
1: um, What's a, legacy. Like what do you what do you want your yeah. legacy to be?
2: Wow <laughs> I don't know. I feel so like I'm just getting started, so I haven't thought about legacy, but I I don't know hosting themes
1: of what you want to do for the world or you know, make it a better place than well,
2: I, I think about reporting as a thing that hopefully makes the world a better place. Um, mm-hmm. Can you explain you know, that? Yeah. I mean, I I try my best to write stories that explain to people how the government is working, um, explain to them when, you know, um, politicians who are working for them are going against their interests or acting in a way that could be considered corrupt. Um, and you know i I hope and I try to to make sure that what I do is building trust in um in facts and truth and um, mm-hmm. you know in particular with um the community back at home. I feel like there's a lot of political divisions, but in particular a yeah. lot of Mistrust in the news, um, and I'd hope that through my work and my example that people can sort of regain some of that trust because it's it's harder to call someone you know a liar or fake. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: Everyone is hunting so for the truth, right? Yeah, and I think what you're trying to do is to have a respectful conversation, perhaps. You
2: know, even if people might disagree with you. I would say that's not even true. I'm not trying to have a conversation. I'm not, you know, in my work, I'm not trying to put out my opinions for people to disagree with. I think that's actually almost the wrong premise. It's that everyone, you know, people can still agree or disagree, but they, they need to work off a common set of facts. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm working to establish is a common set of facts.
1: So bring the truth out there.
2: Based yeah, on exactly.
1: Facts and evidence and educating people. Right, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so Michelle. So a lot of young women, they feel as though they can't pursue their dreams and their goals because they have priorities of, let's mm-hmm. say, you know, the expectations that are imposed on them by society, so mm-hmm. that they have to be a wife and a mother, which are all beautiful and wonderful things. But mm-hmm. what would you say to these women who feel like they can't pursue their ambitions because of their other, you know, expectations or their other responsibilities?
2: You Can know, women do that? <laughs> I really think they can, I intend to, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I'm not married right now, um mm-hmm. I certainly don't have kids, I don't intend to have kids very soon so i've I've made a set of choices, and I think you know there's some value in recognizing that um people make choices and those choices have consequences mm-hmm. um, and i I think the best advice that I can give. Is that for younger girls in particular that you think about those choices and the consequences that they carry? That you know that the earlier that you have kids, it might be a little tougher to um, pursue your other dreams. I don't think it's impossible. Um, No, statistically, it's tougher. Yeah, and so I guess my best advice would be think carefully about what you want and know that both are possible. That if you, um, you know, if you start working on your professional dreams first, that that doesn't mean that your dreams of having a family are impossible. Sure. <laughs> um, and I would also yeah. say, I mean, yeah, I, I, I can't, I feel like I'm in not a very good position to speak to people who have already gotten married and had kids. Cause those people are ahead of me, <laughs> you know, I mean, but but I think, I mean, All I rather. imagine that there's probably a lot of value to those people in defining yourself in a way that's not just defined by the Your people herbivore. around you, right? Exactly. Right. No, I mean, like, I, I think there's probably some value in having a definition for yourself that's not just wife, mother. That Yeah, you know, of course. Yeah.
1: yeah. So. I know, I mean, I know a lot of women... Who you know they did get married young,
0: and mm-hmm. they had
1: they had their babies very young, and now they're like right. they're they're lawyers and you know they're psychologists. That's amazing. Psychologists. But yeah. I just think it's not promoted heavily in our community.
2: I just mm-hmm. like that's why what do I'm you getting. think that is?
1: So <laughs> I'm not sure, but I find that in our community it isn't promoted as much as, let's say, Ashkenazi communities or mm-hmm. other communities.
2: mhm,
1: not saying that it's not possible. There are a lot of women who do balance work, career, and family. Well, for
2: a lot of women, it's not a choice because, I mean, for, for most people, one income is not enough not to enough. sustain a family. Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. And so I mean I can't I can't imagine sustaining anyone but myself on my current salary. <laughs> right, right. So. And I it's it's just because I
1: feel as though some people don't realize, some girls don't realize that mm-hmm. life is not just for free. You have to earn it. You know, you have to do yeah. things to earn yeah. it and you can't just rely you can't only rely on your husband to make money, that if you want to live a comfortable lifestyle, then you can
2: also do something, you know? <laughs> I feel like we're opening a whole can of worms here. Yeah. <laughs> we but... are, but um, no, no, it's just like
1: you're bringing a different perspective. You are showing that it is possible and that just because you're married and you have kids, it doesn't mean that you can't pursue your dreams. That's what I'm, that's what I'm getting at with you. And also vice yeah. versa, just
2: because who are, true. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, I have some amazing colleagues that I sit next to who have small children and cover the White House, who have small children and go on the campaign trail and mm-hmm. they do it. So, you know, I, I watch them and of course it's not easy, but I'm like, they do it. You know, I can too. Of course. <laughs> um, of course
1: yeah and like people think that if they have a career and they only have a career that that they can't be a wife and
2: they can't have children, they can't have a family, but like no, of
1: course you've heard yeah,
2: that's the opposite of true and and in fact, most people do have a career yeah. first before they become wives and mothers,
1: Mhm, yeah so that's very interesting, so Michelle, I want to end off with asking you, what does being a good person? What does that mean to you? And does that
2: correspond with being Jewish? Oh, interesting. No, it does not correspond with being Jewish. (laughs) Okay. Um, I think being a good person, to me, means someone who is... I, I hesitate to use the word accepting because I feel like that's almost too passive. I think Mm -hmm. a good person is someone who is actively kind to others, who doesn't think only about themselves. Yeah, Mm -hmm. who goes out of their way to make sure that that the things that they're doing are having a positive rather than negative impact on other people and the world. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think about the people, I think about the environment, um, and and being mindful about those things. And their choices Um, have
1: consequences, like you said.
2: You're right. About, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. So, that's beautiful. I think that's what I think of as a good person, and it doesn't. You don't need to be a Jew to be a good person.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I know. I think there's this misconception, you know, especially with like younger kids, like, oh, you know. They're not Jewish, so are they bad? Or like, no, of course, there's good people everywhere.
2: Yeah. And, I mean, my know. dad and I were just talking about the Sackler family who uh are the owners of Purdue Pharma, the ones who produced the oxycodone that they actively were con- convincing people to take, to get hooked on. And, you know, tons of people have died. And my mm-hmm. dad, you know, we were talking about this, and he was like, you know, unfortunately, that family is Jewish, and I was like, "Well, you know, the Jewish community is large, and there are some bad people in it." So. Yeah, that was, You know, <laughs> we know there's a
1: saying, Michelle, that don't uh-huh. judge, don't judge Judaism by the Jews. Judge Judaism, the religion, by Judaism, by mm-hmm. by the Torah, by what it right. entails. And, you know, people look at sometimes people, Jewish people who do, who do bad things and say, oh, I don't want to be Jewish. I, I, I don't want to be around Jewish people because this, and this person is like that. But that's not true. You know, there's people who, because they make the wrong choices, because we're mm-hmm. all human beings, that they might give Judaism a bad name. But we shouldn't be judging Judaism by what, Fellow certain Jewish people do. That's mm-hmm. what I think. I agree with that. Yeah. So, wow. Michelle, it was really like such a pleasure and educational okay. lesson to talk <laughs> to you. And I'm sure our listeners will gain so much perspective and understanding and a different, you know, outlook on life just from listening to your story and the beautiful advice and lessons that you have gave, given to them. And can you tell our audience where they can find you, how they can contact you?
2: Absolutely. So um, I'm pretty Googleable. <laughs> um, I'd advise you to just Google my name, which is Michelle Hackman. Hackman mm-hmm. is spelled H-A-C-K-M-A-N. And you'll find all the ways in the world to contact me.
1: <laughs> okay, wonderful. On, and then yeah. – Do you have an Instagram? I would be promoting this on Instagram. (laughs) I do. It's at mhackman93. mhackman93. Oh, wow. I was in third grade when you were born.
2: (laughs) I think that makes you feel pretty young.
1: (laughs) Yeah, hopefully. Michelle, thank you so much.
2: It was really a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you.
0: you enjoy this podcast and you want to hear more soul sessions, you can go on sinairadio.com or type in Sinai Radio on all major podcast players and you can see a whole bunch of other soul sessions. And if you want to learn more about what I do, you can check out my Instagram page at Soul Train KK. Have a wonderful day.